0: Everybody listening on Anchor, Spotify, Breaker, Google, Overcast, Radio Public, wherever you get your shows. This is On the Farm, a podcast dedicated to covering major and minor league baseball. We have a lot to get to this week. We were off for the last 14 days or so. Uh, My co host had some finals to study for. So we're going to get to trades, free agent signings, and the important news around the league that we've missed over the last couple of weeks. I'm Matt Kovitz. Joining me, as always, my studious colleague, Sam Shapiro. How are you doing, Sam?
1: Well, Matt, first, I have to say that you're giving me a little too much credit in terms of how studious I actually was. Uh, I did have final exams. Uh, Whether or not I adequately prepared for them is a matter that will not be discussed on this podcast. But it's really great to be back. And as I was telling you before we went on air, I just I miss this so much. It's become a really, really special part of my routine, especially given the fact that, you know, we're however many months into lockdown and, you know, be able to, to get together with you and share our hot takes and go over uh, all the news that's been going around uh, the major and minor leagues has you know, really been a, a bright spot for me the past few months. So glad to be back in the swing of things.
0: That really means a lot to me. And I'm glad that you enjoy this so much. I enjoy it as well. And because we've been off for these two weeks, the news has piled up. As a result, we're not going to get to the NL Central prospects the way that we have for the previous three divisions the last couple of weeks. We're going to get to that next week. So Cubs fans, Reds fans, Brewers fans, Pirates fans, Cardinals fans, rest assured, you will hear about who's coming up on the farm in about seven days' time. We're going to start with two stories that are going to be overarching over the next few months because they're quite important, not just in baseball, but in the cultural zeitgeist of America, especially in the year 2020. We'll start in Cleveland their team name of course the indians they have decided that they are going to stick with the cleveland indians moniker in 2021 but move on and find a different name for 2022 and beyond they released a statement saying that it was well past due and considering what the washington football team did in the wake of protests this summer went from of course the redskins the incredibly controversial name to the football team it seems like cleveland's going to go in a different direction and Just ditch the Indians altogether. Of course, Chief Wahoo, their logo that was criticized for decades, was taken off of the hat in 2013, taken off of the jersey entirely in 2019. Now anything related to Native American culture is going to be taken away from this Cleveland franchise. And quite frankly, there are a few things that are I'm really adamant about that, wow, this is pretty bad if you think about it. The Cleveland Indians name, that's pretty bad if you think about it. And I'm glad they're taking this step.
1: Yeah, I think one thing that stuck out to me after doing a little more research on the history of the the, the controversies that that name had had generated. Uh, this is not to say that there weren't efforts to, you know, push back against the redskins and get a change there. There was a lot of, you know, really fervent activism going on especially with respect to to the Indians uh that you know, I really wasn't uh, aware of as just like a general fan of the game and that going back, you know, 20 25 years there were consistent, you know, efforts made by uh, by, you know, by, by Native American groups uh, to uh, you know try and you know spur some change, and there was a lot of really you know ugly reactions coming from Cleveland's fan base, which you know it's you know it's a source source of great shame for for the game you know and you know for for for, for the country as a whole. I think that's you know as you, as you said, long past due. I think one one thing I do want to point out with respect to the the change in Washington. I, I kind of have to wonder if that was as much motivated by kind of, you know, getting with the times versus they also had that scandal come out over all of the, you know, you know, inappropriate behavior in their front office and, you know, coaches and players, you know, sharing women. Uh, and I, I feel like Washington, they changed the name in in part to distract from that. Whereas here, I think, you know, I, I hesitate to give the franchise or MLB undeserved credit here, but you know they did come out and say this name is a problem, and you know we're do- we're doing this because because it's the right thing to do, not because there was any other sort of scandal rocking the franchise that they needed to get some good PR. Uh, and you know in response to
0: it's actually quite fascinating because at the college level, St. John's and Syracuse changed from the Red Men and the Orange Men to the Red Storm and just the Orange. That was a couple decades ago. It's very curious that both of these franchises. I would imagine that being professional had something to do with it, stuck around with these names for so long.
1: Yeah, I think that's, um, yeah, There's there has to be something about like being a professional sports franchise where the kind of the ties that you get with the fan base, it's not centered around, you know, people who, you know, were alumni of a college or are current students. Uh, there's, it's, it's really, in my experience, at least it's a, it's a multi-generational thing. It's a much stronger... Part of it's 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 a much stronger cultural force, and with that, you get people who are you know much more passionately and and, and fervently attracted to you know even these you know you know incredibly cringeworthy you know identities. And one thing that I think it's also worth mentioning is there's a little bit more ephemerality, I think, in terms of college nicknames. You know, Marquette's changed their mascot several times over the years. Uh, You know, Stanford, they're just the Cardinal now, but that's gone through uh, a a couple of different iterations. But uh, in terms of uh, Major League Baseball, you know, so many of these teams have just been... They've had the same name for 50, 60, 70 years. Um, and I think especially given uh, you know the, the demographics of, of baseball's fan base, which kind of skew older and whiter, you know, no use beating around the bush there. Uh, change is not something that, you know, they're clamoring for in, 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 in many aspects of life, you know, much less, you know, their teams, which they have this strong connection with.
0: Now, looking at the rest of professional sports, there are some morally questionable Nicknames, morally questionable logos that are still in existence. Where is the line going to be drawn? Are the Chicago Blackhawks going to ditch their namesake? What about something like the Kansas City Chiefs or the Atlanta Braves trying to get rid of any kind of connection to Native American culture? Of course, the Braves got rid of the tomahawk chop this year, didn't stop the Chiefs. They're still using it. These questions are going to be raised in the next coming years. It seems like everything's going to be coming to a fever pitch very soon, especially since Washington and Cleveland have ignited these flames.
1: Yeah, I think. You know that's it's it's tough to predict where this goes because um, even though you know you mentioned these you know these other teams, the real controversy has been with football in Washington and, and baseball in Cleveland. That's really where the, the bulk of people's ire has has been lately. <laughs> you know, this just popped into my head. Uh, I'm wondering, you know, if Chicago tries to rebrand as you know something based around Black Hawk helicopters, uh-huh. you know, whether whether or not that like you know whether or not that gets like a whole new round of protests, you know, against you know promoting you know, imperialism and warfare you know, warfare and, 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 and whatnot. I think, and, you know, this is not really my place to be saying this. You probably saw, you know, the Braves kind of fly under the radar because, you know, it's not really as much a part of, of their iconography. They had, you know, a live mascot back in the 80s, which actually was instituted by, you know, a, a Native American to try and to add that to their, uh, you know, their team identity. But the, the kibosh was put on that 30 something years ago. Uh, And so I think like with the Braves aside from, you know, the name and, you know, the, um, you know, the, 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 the the graphic of the logo uh, there's, there's not really like a chief Wahoo esque figure or, you know, like the guy on their their, uh, former Redskins helmet. And so I think that, you know, you might see, you know, some, you might see some teams in in, in that situation continue to get a little bit less scrutiny, but you know, if there's, if there's a movement that kind of develops to, to make this change, you know, more broadly with respect to team names that, uh, invoke Native American imagery, then, you know, I guess that's just, that's just how it is. And I think that one thing I do kind of geek out a a little bit about is seeing teams, you know, kind of, you know, redesign, come up with, you know, different, you know, uniform concepts, you know, there's a, community of people online who just like make ups for you know different color schemes uh, of different teams. There's a lot of like really great creativity that goes on into there. And you know if there's a new name in Atlanta, or if there's a new football name in Kansas City, uh, then you know there's going to be some some cool new gear that comes out of it, and it's going to be you know obviously much more inclusive. So you know there's there's good to be found on multiple fronts.
0: Free promotion here. Chris Creamer's Sports Logos website is fascinating. You can see the history of how teams have been their, you know, how their uniforms have looked over the last hundred years of their existence, the jerseys that they've worn on particular games over the last few years—quite fascinating. And now, the most important question for the Cleveland franchise: what are they going to be named next? They have history as the Naps, named after Napslejoa, and the Spiders, which is the name that a lot of fans are gravitating toward. Do you have a
1: favorite, or is there going to be a wild card selection that ends up being the actual case here? I am big time Team Spiders. Uh, I think that you know uh, it's rooted in their tradition. There've been you know Cleveland Spiders teams in the in the major leagues before. I also think that there's a lot of fun uh, directions you could go with you know your logo, how you're um, designing your uniforms based on that. And you know, spiders can be pretty intimidating. You know, they're black black widows aren't you know really fellas you want to be fucking with. So um, uh, one thing one thing I did read is that there was a, a preemptive. I think trademark application or something for the Cleveland citizens, which, you know, you know, that, that might not mean anything. I'm probably, I saw like some like news flash about that. I have to look into that deeper. Uh, that would be a pretty disappointing name. Uh, kind not, of boring. Yeah. You know, there's obviously the, the thought of mimicking Washington and becoming the Cleveland baseball team. That's also bad. Um,
0: <laughs> the CBT.
1: Although if you're, if you're the Cleveland baseball dudes, maybe you can get some, uh, you know, some tie-ins from, uh, CBD distributors, you know, that that's, could be worth, good. that's, that's, that's living in 3,020. Yeah. That could, that, that could be some, some interesting, uh, marketing crossover opportunities there.
0: Now, the one thing I have to play devil's advocate for is the spiders lost like 115 games. And do you want that associated with your franchise? That's the
1: question. I get that, but also this is a much different Cleveland franchise than uh, the Spiders of back in the day. They've these guys have had you know multiple stretches of dominance in the division. They had their their playoff runs in the '90s. They had uh, some really solid seasons this past decade, and I think that you know you had uh, you had the New York Mets uh, lose their. Uh, what was it? 120 games, their inaugural season, right? Yeah. And they stuck with yeah. that. You're right. And they stuck with the Mets and they're still the Mets. You know, I, I don't think it's an insurmountable obstacle.
0: <laughs> Whatever <laughs> the case, there's going to be change and going to be a fun story to follow over the next year. Plus 2022 is when this is going to be unveiled. Now, the next story that broke over the last few weeks, quite important as well. Negro League statistics have been added to MLB's official records monumental, really. These are seven professional leagues that were in existence from 1920 to 1948. They are now considered to have major league status. So an additional 3,400 players are going to be added to the record books. What this means is that players like Josh Gibson and Cool Papa Bell are now major leaguers after decades of not having that right, because these leagues produced 35 Hall of Famers. And they were initially shunned from other baseball historians. And that injustice will be there no longer. I think this is a great move. But I understand why some may see it as just trying to make up for decades of embarrassment at this level.
1: Yeah, I hmm. I think like just first as like as a, you know, preferatory statement, you know, we're both two young white dudes talking about this and so our our opinions really only count for so much of the grand scheme of things. Of course. Getting that getting 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 that out of the way, I just I get such such a vibe of you know being congratulatory and self serving on the part of Major League Baseball. There's a way where they could do something like this without really whitewashing the history um, behind this because like the the, the 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 matter of fact is these players they were kept from the major leagues due to the overwhelmingly racist attitudes of you know the individuals running teams, the individuals you know in the in the in the, in the league offices, and just kind of you know bringing them into the fold post hoc and saying, Oh, it's great. You're, you're part of our thing. Now it's to me, it's papering over the injustice that was, uh, you know, segregated professional baseball. And I think that getting rid of that history, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a terrible thing because, you know, while we can point to, you know, Jackie Robinson and say that, you know, Major League Baseball, you know, they broke the color barrier, they played you know, a role in, you know, spurring the civil rights conversation forward. It wasn't all good. There was quite a bit of bad. And even though, you know, that's, you know, not pleasant, you know, you got you, you to eat your vegetables. And, you know, just to me, the, the analog to, to this move seems like how, you know, in Washington, D.C., they painted Black Lives Matter you know, across uh, across one of the streets in, in response to the events of this summer, there weren't any structural changes made. They, they didn't, you know, really do much of anything in terms of how the municipality, you know, managed the police department or any sort of, you know, substantive you know, changes meant to further, you know, pr- protect the civil rights of black people. To me, there's something eerily similar present in what Major League Baseball is doing, because, you know, they're not, this is not them taking steps to, tackle the issues of why, you know, major league baseball is, you know, much less diverse than it was even, you know, 20 to 30 years ago. They're not doing things that are meant to, you know, kind of give increased representation, you know, to its black players. They're not doing things to, you know, grow the game, you know, in those, in those, in those communities, you know, it's just like, they want to say, Hey, we did this, look at us. We're so great. And, and, and pat themselves on the back. Whereas, you know, they're, you know, if you, if you listen to guys who are, you know, outspoken to manderson comes to mind i'm sure that there's a lot that uh you know if you put him in a room with rob manfred he could bring to light you know a lot of things that major league baseball could be doing you know to improve things in terms of making sure that you know it's 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 black players have a home in the league and in the game i would much rather see things you know of that nature from the league than just this you know like honestly, it's just like it's it's like it's almost like masturbatory in a way. You know, I hate to make things NC17 here, but that's that's kind of that's 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 kind of where I'm coming from on this.
0: It may be a bit performative, but I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt that they're going to move this conversation forward. And this is a mea culpa, at least at the very ground floor of this. And that hopefully changes start to get made. I was watching the CC Sabathia documentary that premiered on HBO a couple of days ago, and. He knew and he spoke about greatly what it meant to be a black player in this game. When he won 20 games in 2010, he signified how important that was to join the black aces. Just a handful of players have won 20 games on the mound and have been people of color. Uh, He knew what he meant to the game. He wanted to grow the game for people who may not have had the opportunities that he did. And he had a very important conversation with Adam Jones in the middle of the documentary. If for a baseball fan, it's a must watch. I would... I love CC growing up just from a Yankees fan perspective. And there was an important conversation to this as well. Now, what this means for these record books, the total numbers from these professional leagues that at least the records were kept will stick around. So Josh Gibson hit 238 in organized games. There were barnstorming games and exhibition games that they had where they played all around the country. And rumors are that Gibson hit over 800. So he will not become the home run leader overnight because those 500 plus some odd homers don't technically count. The problem is these researchers are working backwards, record keeping during these games, not always perfect and largely ignored by the more successful MLB. And this apathy meant that stats were not always around and kept correctly. So there really, there is a lot that will be lost to the annals of history, even though many people have worked tirelessly to make sure that everything is kept. It's just seemingly
1: impossible that's another excellent point that you bring up, which it'd be one thing if they uh, came out with this statement and they made this promise and they could actually follow through, you know, with like fully integrating things from a statistical standpoint. But as you, as you just said, this is going to be, this is going to be an incomplete project at best and whether or not anyone's actually going to, you know, be able to, to research, you know, these things on anywhere near the level uh, that's, that's necessary. You know, I I I doubt it. The
0: one thing that is unknown at this point is what it means for rate stats. So a cumulative stats will be listed, but Josh Gibson hit for his career, hit 365. That would be a top 10 mark in baseball history. It would bump Babe Ruth and Ted Williams out of that top 10 list. That's inconceivable for many fans, but just think about it critically. Why weren't players like Gibson allowed in MLB for decades and decades? Something has to give. I don't know if they say, all right, Mr. Gibson, you are now a top 10 player in terms of batting average in the history of baseball, but there's got to be a way to acknowledge that while also acknowledging there were a lot of mistakes made. And the fact that it took until 1947 to break the color barrier is an injustice that cannot be paid
1: correctly. Yeah, I mean... I, I kind of am coming at this from a bit more of a, of a detached perspective. You know, I don't tend to get too worked up on who's in, who's in all-time leaderboards. And so, so like my, my, my reaction to that would be if someone's really getting, you know, riled up over Josh Gibbs and pushing someone out of the top 10 for, for like, a, for like a, a rate stat or something, you know, why, why is it worthy of, of that much outrage? You know, I would, I would encourage anyone who's in that situation, just ask themselves that, like, why, why, why get so worked up about that?
0: is only game why you have to be mad so that Anaheim Ducks goalie like 15 years ago. Exactly. So very good discussion that was just destroyed by
1: an Anaheim Ducks reference. But... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think I think we, t- we tend to do a pretty good job when uh, when things get serious here. Definitely. And I this is
0: another conversation that's going to be talked about for months and years on end because it's not going away anytime soon. And I'd like to see what the we can do, even if it's incomplete at best.
1: Right. And I think one thing, just to kind of wrap this up, obviously, we think we have good takes. We think we know stuff and we want you to keep listening to us. But especially on, on these two issues for our listeners, we really encourage you to, you know, whether it's hearing from, you know, indigenous voices on, on issues of team nicknames or, you know, hearing from Black individuals, Black fans, Black writers, uh, you know, other Black figures in the game, seek out Seek out people who are directly Im- Im- impacted by this in ways that Matt and I aren't because, you know, their perspective is something that, you know, we can't even we can't we can't even begin to fathom what that is. And, you know, I think that, you know, in this in the spirit of making this beautiful game, you know, as inclusive for people of, of all backgrounds, as as it must be, in my opinion, hearing from them is something that, you know, we should all be striving to incorporate.
0: On to some wider transactional news over the last 14 days. At the last time we spoke, James McCann had not signed with the New York Mets. The Angels were making a last second push. But we said and we cautioned, don't listen to that. There is more smoke than fire. Seems like he's coming to Queens. And that did come true. Basically, right after we started recording. So I was like, oh, do we really have to go back and like edit all this? Turns out we didn't. It's fine. Four years, $40.6 million for Mr. McCann. Now becomes the most expensive deal this offseason. Although that's going to be surpassed soon. There are still a couple free agents that have yet to sign that are going to get much more than that. Good move for the Mets, who, as we know, are still in on George Springer. It seems like a lot of fans got duped by a fake account saying that he was going to sign on Christmas Day. But he's still definitely in play. And what we said last time, McCann means that Springer is also coming. Real Muto would have meant that they had to choose between the two. But now it seems like they're going to get their wish. And this team may be a bit above 500 as currently constructed. They are by no means done fake accounts, really people in the year of our Lord, 2020, we're, we're still falling for that shit. The name is Ken Rosenthal, but the account is like DN me for CBD products.
1: Oh dear Lord. <laughs> I mean, one thing also to consider, and we'll probably discuss this in a little more detail shortly is DJ LeMay. also being tossed around as someone the Mets are in on. Obviously Steve Cohen, he's gone all in, he's got lots of money to blow, but you know, at some point they have to, you know, have to put a halt on this. So I would imagine that um, you know they'll make their one more big splash of a signing. If you say it's leaning Springer, then you know I, th- I think that's perfectly plausible. But I I, I would then say that that's kind of going to be it for them for the rest of the offseason.
0: That's what it seems like. We just have to get used to these rumors that they're going to be in on every single free agent possible because them and Toronto are the only two teams that actually actively seem to. Want to touch free agents right now. That's going to end, but MLB payrolls dropped a collective $2.47 billion in 2020. It's going to be tough to build that back up overnight. I know it's tough to say, but right now there are only two organizations that seem like they're really in on making change through the free agent market and not just the trade market. And now for DJ LeMahieu, the Blue Jays are in on him as well. The Yankees have some competition. Apparently, LeMahieu wants a fifth year, and the Yankees are $25 million away from making it happen.
1: I think they could extend the invite and give him the fifth year on that deal. Yeah, I mean, I think just looking at the intangible value he brought to that team of giving them an MVP contender and, you know, someone... Either winning or coming very close to winning the, the the batting title each of the past two years. I think you kind of do have to kind of splurge a little bit. Keeping someone like that around is important, especially if you're the New York Yankees and you know you're kind of used to having people of that caliber, you know, stick around in your lineup versus, you know, looking for greener pastors elsewhere.
0: I don't like that your Tyler Wade tweet may be coming true where fans are just gonna have to get used to him at second base because this is getting scary. And if someone's gonna offer him that fifth year and push him over a hundred million dollars, and he's going to have no choice but to take it. There are no hometown discounts anymore.
1: And, you know, <laughs> it's funny you mentioned uh, the Tyler Wade thing. Part of me wonders if you see Kyle Holder make the Phillies out of spring training and actually end up contributing someone as their, as their utility infielder, as, as someone who potentially could have, you know, in a situation where you miss out on LeMayu, he could have, you know, definitely been an option to get reps over, uh, over your buddy Tyler. I don't think a
0: single thing has unified the Yankees more than hashtag sign DJ. So please. Now for some former relievers on this team. Jonathan Holter signed a one-year major league deal with the Chicago Cubs. I will always root for him. I hope he figures it out. The main story here, though, the Los Angeles Dodgers getting a great one in Tommy Canely, a two-year contract, the first year of which is going to be a rehab year. He underwent Tommy John surgery this August. Never really looked right this year, even when he was pitching. Velocity wasn't always there, was getting hit hard a few times. Canely was a great addition to this bullpen. When he came over, along with David Robertson and Todd Frazier in 2017, he was the real prize. And he entered the back end of that bullpen and did quite well, served in a sap role, could also be a multi-inning guy, a very solid member of that 2017 run that got stymied by the Astros. 2018, things got a bit worse. He ended up getting sent back down to AAA, had no control whatsoever, had some shoulder issues, figured it out in 2019. So a bit of a mixed bag, but on the whole, a very good pitcher with some great spin rates. This is not the typical Los Angeles Dodgers signing where they try to make a reclamation project out of a reliever, a la Dylan Floro, because they're already getting a very good product. They just need to hope that it heals well. In 2022, this is a guy that can contend for the seventh or even the eighth
1: inning role in Los Angeles. I and mean, that's pretty lofty praise given how deep of a bullpen they have, but I think that kind of gets to the heart of it is they made it as as deep as they did in large part because they had so many solid options. Uh, you know whether it was Joe Kelly, kind of you know back on his old bullshit and giving them good innings throughout the season, Adam kolaric as their as their as their lefty guy, Blake Shrinan. I, I would argue he was you know a bit of a rec- reclamation project in his own right, and I think that. You know, adding Canley to the mix, it's, just, it's, it's more of the same. And it's you know, something that will really give them a huge edge in staying on top of the NLS, especially with, uh, with San Diego rising. Uh, you, know, you can never be too careful in terms of uh, you know, making sure you have adequate reinforcements.
0: Just the smart signing. And if things go awry, they could always pull what the Rays did with Nate Uvalde and just ship him off. They signed him to a two-year contract as well in 2017. Didn't get onto the field until the next year. Performed well was traded to Boston. And we all know how that ended. Another deal yes. that I'm... Yes, we do. They want. <laughs> <clears throat> another deal that I am fascinated by, and I'm very much looking forward to seeing Chris Flexen going to the Seattle Mariners. Flex those muscles is right. Two-year, $4.75 million deal. Is this another Korea to MLB success story? He really struggled on the Mets. He was a heavier guy His conditioning was a problem a couple of years ago. He lost a lot of weight in 2019. Still didn't really matter. Mets fans did not enjoy what he was bringing to the table because his ERA was approaching six and seven at some points. Ended up taking a deal with the Doosan Bears. Just rattled off 116 and two thirds. Tremendous innings. Struck out 130 guys. Usain made a deep playoff run. And now Flexen is going to come back stateside. Do we have another Miles Michaelis or Merrill Kelly on our hands in Seattle here? I mean, I think
1: that uh, Kelly is the upside. Uh, someone who can serve as a, a capable number three, number four starter, give you innings when you need them. Uh, not the guy I would trust, you know, in a... Late season game with playoff implications per se, but I think that uh, if you're Seattle, you know you've got Marco Gonzalez, you've got uh, Kikuchi, hopefully bouncing back and you know being a capable number two. So they're not going to necessarily need flex to anchor the staff, just taking a place in in that, in that rotation where you've already got guys like Justice Sheffield and Justin Dunn uh, looking to you know entrench themselves as as solid young talents. You know you have flex ability at the back end, so. Uh-huh. so could be could be interesting to watch there.
0: My take is that if this works out like Michaelis and Kelly have, Flexen is much better than Nick Marjovicius and he could even enter that innings eating role. Like you say Kikuchi has really not done much in his MLB career. He was one of the guys who had an ERA over five in 2019, didn't qualify for the ERA title, but started over 30 games. I believe he was the only player to do that just because he kept getting knocked around too much and really struggled in 2020. I think Flexen could be a sturdy number two if these changes are real and that's a big if we don't know how it's going to translate, but Korea is known for being a hitter's paradise. And if he mastered that, then I would think that the changes are
1: real at least a little bit. Yeah. I was going to say, it seems like a lot of the guys who are, you know, Potentially uh, looked at as guy, as as those who can retransition back or hitters. Uh, you know, obviously Eric Thames is the biggest name, but Mel Rojas Jr. Uh, had a lot of eyes on him after that uh, incredible season he put together this past year. Before uh, you know, he ended up going to Japan at the end, but still to be able to get the contract that Flexen did as a as as a pitcher. You know, facing these very beefy Korean lineups, power to
0: him. Your Red Sox have been busy, haven't they? They just signed Matt Andres and Hunter Renfro on one-year deals, and they're going to get some significant play in this lineup and this rotation.
1: Yeah, I think that for these short prove-it deals, there's really not much to complain about. Uh, Renfro, uh, as we mentioned, when he first got designated for assignment, he's a year removed from hitting 30-plus home runs. I do worry if there's a little bit of redundancy when uh, it comes to already having uh, JD Martinez on this roster, but powers the name of the game we've got uh, at bats for the taking in the outfield if he can show a bit of a return to his uh, his former form uh, you know this could very well pay off uh, as far as andres even if he isn't really able to make much hay in the rotation if he just ends up kind of you know as like a you know seventh inning guy you know multi inning relief we just we need we, we need arms in general and with andres you get a guy who has you know a solid proven track record over the past you know 5 6 years and you know, as, as I've alluded to before, the cast of rotating characters that we had to rely on this past summer, not guys I trusted then, not guys I trust going forward. And so at, at, at this point, any depth is, is good depth.
0: Now I'm not familiar. Were the Red Sox a team that incorporated an opener over the last few seasons? Because Andres can certainly work as a bulk guy who comes in an inning two or three and just sticks around to get some outs
1: until the main bullpen pieces come in. You know, I should have a better idea of this. I don't think it was really that common. It may have happened a couple times with like Marcus Walden, but there's, there's, de- there's definitely an opening for that with him because yeah, you're right. I do remember seeing his name pop up in that context, especially um, you know, given his, 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 his history as a former Tampa Bay Ray. Core is an innovative guy. He, you know, he follows the analytics. That's something that he, he could be used in that role. Definitely. Just remains to be seen how often. Now some retirement news. Howie Kendrick hanging up his spikes after a long
0: career in the big leagues really flies under the radar as one of the best second basemen of the decade. I wouldn't put him on in a top five list, but a guy who was always a sturdy presence in the lineup could destroy lefties with the best of them, provided a good clubhouse atmosphere. A nice goodbye for Mr. Howie Kendrick.
1: Yeah, I'm really happy to see him finally get a ring, especially all those years he spent on an Angels team that never really made it beyond you know the earlier rounds of the playoffs. You know, bounced around you know on a couple of other teams. I, I have to imagine that even though those 19 Nationals, they were they were they were Juan Soto's team, having a guy like Howie Kendrick, not just you know being a very solid middle of the order presence, but what he brought to that clubhouse, you know, as a guy in his mid to late 30s be that kind of veteran leader I wasn't in that clubhouse but I can imagine that having him there along for the ride uh, was absolutely invaluable in giving that team the confidence uh, it needed to make that that uh, very impressive run throughout the playoffs so we t- we tip our caps to him
0: 100% and this ties into the Nationals latest move signing Josh Harrison back to a one-year contract he has really struggled he is not the player he once was and I wouldn't expect him to fill in for Kendrick admirably, but he's going to be on this roster. It's been around 10 years of Harrison. Once a much better batting average threat, not really there anymore.
1: Yeah, I think at this point in his career, he's, uh, he's a solid depth piece. Uh, he, can, he can give you some third base, some second base. They could probably stick him in uh, you know, left field at this point. I think he's played a, a little bit of outfield at different points in his career. But uh, one thing that uh, it might be just nice to see from him going off of what I mentioned with Kendrick is you have a guy like Carter Keyboom who's uh, gotten a lot of hype over the past few years, not really entrenched himself quite yet, even you know, talks that he, he could be acquired if Mike Rizzo gets the right offer. Uh, and so I think that giving him the opportunity to have you know, another season with someone like Harrison, who's been a, a longtime third baseman in the major leagues, uh, there's a lot that, that Keebin could continue to learn from him. And there could be some benefits uh, that, they could, uh, that they could extract there.
0: Now, these Tampa Bay Rays are always scheming and up to something. Their latest acquisition makes me think that they know something that we all don't. Michael Waka getting a one-year $3 million deal. His changeup looked great this year. Every other pitch was awful. The Mets were not happy with what they got. He got a discounted rate, too. He has fallen very far from his original days in the league in 2013 and 2014. Injuries have gotten to him. It looks like a shell of his former self. But if there's any organization that's going to do this that isn't the Dodgers, the Rays are the best place to land. I, that being said, I don't know if fans want to see a project entering the rotation after just making the World Series.
1: Right. And I don't even know if he's, he's guaranteed a spot in this rotation. Uh, my, my guess would be that he would have to fight it out with any of these you know, young guys or prospects that we've you know, discussed on previous shows. But one guy who I think you know, deserves a lot of credit for his work over the past few years is Kyle Snyder. Obviously, a, a, a nice MLB career uh, in his own right, but ever since becoming the pitching coach for the Rays, uh, we've, we've seen a lot of reclamation projects pan out for them. And I think that working working with a guy like Snyder could be uh, the boost that uh, that Mr. Waka needs. I think that you might see him in more of a, a long relief role, if I'm being completely honest with you. But hey, as, as we keep saying with the Rays, they, just, they know how to extract value from guys in all the right places.
0: A couple other moves to go over before we get into the trades that we've encountered the last few weeks. Michael A. Taylor going to the Kansas City Royals. Seems like a stopgap in center field, most likely. That, that That's really all I see from it. But they've been quite active on this free agent market, no matter how small the deal.
1: Yeah, you know, we talked about guys like uh, Khalil Lee and Kyle Isbell uh, on, our, on our most recent show. That, to me, is where the action is going forward. Obviously, Taylor uh, will give you some solid at-bats. And, you know, as, as, as we've discussed, their outfield's in a little bit of flux this year. Alex Gordon, longtime franchise cornerstone, never incredibly easy to replace. And so having a guy like Taylor just gives them another option, especially if uh, they decide after spring training that Edward Olivares is not ready for regular playing time in center field.
0: The San Francisco Giants are a team I'm keeping my eye on. They seem to have some optimism that they're going to make these playoffs in 2021. They were just a rogue... Strike call away from challenging for that eighth spot this year, and they're looking to shore up this rotation. Kevin Gosman sticking around; he signed that qualifying offer. We spoke about that about a month and a half ago. Now getting a discounted player who may end up turning into something nice. Anthony Desclafani, a one-year, six million dollar deal. Injuries have bothered him as well, but when he's on. He's one of the more stable presences in this Reds rotation. He fell by the wayside when guys like Sonny Gray, Luis Castillo, and Trevor Bauer all came to town. Certainly a guy that you could have and be confident in, getting you at least five or six innings every night.
1: Yeah, I think that's, um, with the Giants, uh, Gatsman was uh, kind of an, an example, I think, of what they'd like to see with Disclifani. You know, someone who had fallen on hard times. Uh, you know, kind of buying low on him and then watching him pan out this past year has to be encouraging for them. One thing that's kind of interesting: I've seen some rumblings of the Giants as a possible dark horse in the Bauer sweepstakes. The main concern being that obviously Bauer wants to play for a more guaranteed winner, and the Giants—they they've seen the past couple of years like they're in no man's land, kind of teetering on the edge, making some of these moves, but also having to contend with uh, the Dodgers and Padres in their division. If these more recent signings reflect an urge to compete at that highest level, that could be something that they're possibly going to be playing up in a, in a, in a Bauer pursuit if, if it exists.
0: They've been in on guys even when they were much worse. The 90 loss team of 2017 was just about to get John Carlos Stanton before the Yankees stepped in. So it's not like they're afraid of contention. Bryce Harper is another man that comes to mind. They were rumored to float a deal around $300 million before he ended up getting much more from Philly. So no matter the record, it seems like they're going to be involved in the process. So I wouldn't be surprised if Bauer comes out of this in black and orange, but still no, a ways to go. No shit. I did not know that about Stanton. Yeah, it was the, he wanted to stake on the coast. So the Dodgers were there. The Cardinals were not. They were considered the fourth team out of four uh, in, those, in those sweepstakes because he wanted to be near the ocean. You have to Maybe, wonder if... Is he Aquaman?
1: My, my initial thought is you have to wonder if the even-year magic would have continued had that chill, you know, yeah. had, had, had he settled into you know, to left field at and Stadium. And in that 2018 season,
0: he was healthy and he was great. Maybe not so much in the playoffs, but he would have propelled them to higher highs. Uh, some other news. There was a Twitter campaign that was... Gaining some traction in the Motor City, hashtag Doll to Detroit. David Dahl, of course, non-tendered by the Colorado Rockies. We covered this. Not going to be going to Detroit. He's going to these increasingly intriguing Texas Rangers on a one-year prove-it contract. Needs to stay healthy. As I said, I've really liked his game when he's been up. He's an all-star, just way too injury-prone. If you want to give someone that label, a prove-it deal is exactly what he was in the market for. Let's see if Texas can extract that value out of him.
1: I think this is uh, very interesting to look at in tandem with the Nate Lowe signing. The at-bats are there for the taking. This is no longer Delino DeShields' center field. If he can stay healthy, you know, he's someone who could be hitting leadoff or second for them all season long. And if if he's able to pan out, you know, this could be a real steal for the Rangers.
0: Now, these Rangers have been busy. They had one of the most recent signings this winter. They just nabbed Kohei Arihara from Japan, a two-year deal in the 6 to $7 million range. He's immediately slotted in as the three-starter behind Kyle Gibson and Jordan Wiles. He doesn't have wipeout strikeout totals, which may be a bit concerning because he made more money than Shun Yamaguchi of Toronto, and Yamaguchi was better in that strikeout department, and he hasn't really been spectacular so far. I know it's a very brief sample size, but maybe a bit of pause there. He's been durable, and I feel like that's what matters more here. He did some great things for the Naponeham Fighters over the last six seasons. Only 28 years old. If he can be an innings eater, he could, again, just stick around in this rotation that has been struggling
1: to find bodies. Right, yeah. And I think that aside from uh, their, their recent acquisition, Dane Dunning, uh, there was really uh, quite a bit of, of innings up for grabs for this Rangers team. Looking at some of the guys they tried to slot in this past season, you know, Wes Benjamin, John King. You know, these are people who, you know, I, as someone who pours over minor league statistics, have little to no familiar, familiarity with before they debut. That kind of, you know, in my opinion speaks to the supreme lack of depth they had. Uh, you know, Kyle Cody, former, you know, top draft pick, pleasant surprise, but he's had, uh, you know, a very injury riddled pro career so far. Uh, he was not really stretched out this year. Couldn't give them more than five or six innings at a time. Uh, and so to me, this makes a lot of sense uh, they're going to be counting on him for quite a bit because Jordan Lyles hasn't exactly been the model of consistency over the past few years. Kyle Gibson, you get innings from him, but uh, the he's not an ace. He's just not yeah, an ace. Yeah, not much more to be said than that.
0: While Dahl to Detroit didn't work out, Raina to Detroit did. The longtime Marlins pitcher, who at one point was an ace in his own right, only a name because, again, not a guy you want to be fronting rotation. Uh, also worked as a closer with the fish Had his issues with Ronald Acuna that were spelled out over the last few years, wildly inconsistent, but again, a guy who can give them something and Detroit now missing one of their top prospects, which I'd like you to delve into more to provide, I guess, serviceable innings for a team that desperately needs them.
1: Sure, uh, we have the recent news breaking that uh, Alex Fido, uh, their 10, number ten overall prospect, ready out of the University of Florida, will be undergoing Tommy John surgery. And well now we did say that
0: he had a forearm strain last year and was struggling at the ultimate training site, so I guess it just never healed.
1: Right. Yeah. And now it's 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 spiraled into 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 this situation. Yep. Now there are other people ahead of Fido on the organizational pitching depth chart. Obviously, you know Casey Mize, Drew uh, Matt Manning. So with a guy like Urania, he's someone who you can kind of juxtapose against these, you know, highly touted prospects as someone who, you know, ideally, even though his his numbers from this past season wouldn't suggest it, you want a guy like Mize, number two, number three, ideally, you know, you got Spencer Turnbull who's shown that he's kind of, you know, that middle rotation guy you can count on. You can put Urania at number four, number five. You can have uh, not a lot of pressure riding on him, and I think that one. Nice, bright spot on this Tiger staff is that Daniel Norris seemed to rediscover himself in a bit of a, you know, long man role out of the bullpen. So there's a bit of a bit of a cushion if a guy like Urania struggles a bit out of the gate.
0: Los Angeles Angels and Perry Menezian may have been listening to us when we were talking about how poor that bullpen was last time because they just signed Alex Claudio to a one year deal. Has carved himself out a pretty nice role as a loogie and as a setup man in Milwaukee. This with his funky delivery, I, I like this, and this is one of the few moves that I've enjoyed so far. You know, it's the Angels, so he's going to have a seven ERA through May, and then things are going to get iffy. But could he possibly step into this
1: closer's role? I mean, to me, it's it's Iglesias' job to lose, but Claudio has closed before. I think he gives you solid set of experience at the absolute uh, worst obviously not someone with extremely loud stuff, but he's a big ground ball guy. He's been consistent in terms of that throughout his whole career. And, you know, with the angels missing out on James McCann, uh, the conventional wisdom is they're going to continue to uh, look to upgrade this pitching staff of theirs. And, you know, to me, I think that's, that's the key in terms of seeing whether they can put together a, a decent season and finally get their, their, their guy, Mike Trout back to the playoffs.
0: The last signing we're going to profile is an international one. A cesspit for the rest of us. Yoannis' brother Yoelki going to the Chicago
1: White Sox in a multi-million dollar deal. Uh, I just have to say right off the bat, this signing was reported on the eve of Festivus. So it I th- really I is a the, miracle. The, the, the writing staff was a little too on the nose with that one. <laughs> so uh, hoping that he can contribute. How many years away would you say he is? Um, That's... Difficult to say. I think that, uh, you know, he's he's only 23. So that to me suggests that there's going to be at least a couple of years in the minor leagues. People have said that, uh, you know, he has real five-tool potential. A lot of, you know, 50-plus grades on his, you know, on his profile for, you know, different tools and skills. Number one overall in uh, MLB Pipeline's rankings... Um, so there's going to be a lot of excitement here. And I think that one thing that can kind of hearten White Sox fans is looking at how quickly uh, Luis Robert was able to contribute. He was only uh, a one to two year post signing guy before he debuted. Right, Matt?
0: Yeah, that's sounds right.
1: Yeah. And so I think that, um, you know, I don't want to compare the two directly just because I haven't seen enough game film of either. But I think that the general archetype in terms of very toolsy guy, obviously great bloodlines, you know, for... You know, all the questions surrounding Ioannis' health and commitment to the game, there's no denying he's a tremendously talented baseball player. And so, you know, to kind of add another uh, another young player with, with this kind of excitement uh, attached to his name, uh, it almost seems unfair looking at all the other guys who have who've broken out on the uh, uh, on the south side of Chicago recently.
0: I'll give it five years before Yoelki's golf habits get questioned day after day in the tabloids, like his older I mean, brother's.
1: I mean, I'm personally waiting to see what his what his barbecue looks like, and what if he can pull off the whole hog or whole, you know, cow or whatever, <laughs> whatever, whatever, whatever he's cooking on.
0: Now, some trade news, and it involves one of our two favorite GMs. If it's the winter meetings, and Jerry DePoto doesn't make a deal, did the winter meetings actually happen?
1: No, they did not.
0: Well, this may have taken a couple of days after, but he finally got his wish. Rafael Montero will be going from Texas to Seattle really established himself after washing out with the Mets. He was considered to have the higher floor than a little known guy named Jacob deGrom. That, of course, didn't work. Tommy John surgery struggles thereafter, was not the worst member of that Rangers bullpen in 2019, and really established himself last year. He was on my fantasy team for a horrific Rangers team. He racked up a bunch of saves. He's looking like the new look closer here in the Pacific Northwest. Also joining Seattle, Keenan Middleton on a minor league contract has closer experience with the angels got hurt as well. So very similar stories there. This Mariners team is looking quite fascinating with all of these new players. I'm not saying they're going to contend anytime soon, but they're not going to be dreadful.
1: Right. And I think that if you uh, look at Montero Middleton in tandem with one of their earlier signings, Kendall Graveman, uh, another guy who uh, they're bringing back, but definitely a, quite a bit of an injury history there. And he's shifting full-time to relief work for the first time in his career. It seems like that's really the strategy DePoto is, is focusing on, taking these, uh, you know, second, third chance guys and, you know, hoping for one of them to pay off.
0: Going back to Texas in this deal is Jose Corniel. I don't have much information on Jose Corniel, but I don't know about you.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, I, I, I I hate to, to, to you know, weasel out of this just because we're on the farm and, you know, I feel like we should be giving these prospects their dues. One of, I think one of the difficult things about this moment in time is we didn't have a minor league season, we didn't have a complex season. Uh, and so that, especially when you have like an international prospect get traded, there's even less that can be relied on in terms of trying to, you know, give an accurate picture of, 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 of who they are. I think looking briefly at, uh, at let me Corneal, just say we're,
0: we're allowed to not know this particular person. He's 17 years old and has yet to play a single inning. Yeah, no, I feel I feel
1: more vindicated upon hearing that confirmed.
0: Three plus pitches right now, the 24th best player in Seattle system. So we'll slot in. Long way to go. So kudos to us for knowing what we don't know. How about that? I like that. Sticking with these Rangers, they are tying up some loose ends from a trade that was made in August. Todd Frazier going from Texas to the Mets and now tying up this deal. Ryder Ryan will be returning to the Rangers. Decent looking stuff and reached double A in 2019. So a guy that could mean something to the Rangers in the future.
1: Yeah, I think that just given the lack of options they have, um, he's someone who I can see getting a very long look in spring training. And if not making the team, should at least be up at some point over the summer. Was never highlighting. Top prospect lists. I think that when you're when you're shifted to the bullpen early in your minor league career, that's incredibly tough to do. But he's someone who got consistent praise in the scouting reports that were written up about him. You know, yeah, especially if you're Texas and, you know, you now no longer have Rafael Montero holding your bullpen down. Jose Leclerc as your closer. They tried that before. Uh, they're giving him a second chance, it looks like that's eh, not exactly confidence inspiring. So there will be Uh, spots up for grabs over the next year for a guy like Ryder Ryan, possibly.
0: Ryan was acquired in 2017 for Jay Bruce. So he couldn't find his way into this Mets bullpen, no matter how much it struggled over the last few years. We'll see if he gets some new life in Arlington. Now to the much more noteworthy trade that occurred on Christmas Eve. So a miracle for some Nationals fans. They're getting some first base help. Josh Bell moving from the Pittsburgh Pirates to D.C. in exchange for two guys we talked about, go us, Will Crow and Eddie Yeon. Now, I don't know which Bell is going to show up, but I would imagine that it's not 2020 Josh Bell. Really struggled, had one of the lowest slugging percentages for weeks and weeks amongst qualified players. Did not look like himself. I would think that playing in Pittsburgh and playing for a franchise that really did not have much going for it had something to do with it. Now, of course, he got a lot of Babbitt help in 2019, but he did have an OPS of over 930 for that year. After being largely decent for his first couple of years, I don't know where his happy medium is, but I'd imagine Washington's getting an upgrade over somebody like Eric Thames, and he's going to help Ryan Zerman get reacclimated to the game as well. So he may not be a superstar, but he's going to be useful.
1: Yeah, and I have to think that sliding him in a lineup with Juan Soto, with Trey Turner, with Victor Robles, pitchers won't be able to kind of, you know, go around him as much as they did when he was the focal point of that Pirates lineup. I think that taking the pressure off him definitely helps there. And I think that, as you mentioned, you know, the culture of a team like the Pirates versus the Nationals, I think is, you know, you you, you can't even compare them in the same sentence. Even when you have a Nationals team that's, you know, finishing, you know, toward the bottom of their division this year, you know, that core is still there. Davey Martinez is still at the helm. Uh, And so I have to think that, especially for a guy like Bell, who's still in the early stages of his major league career, uh, there is room to right the ship compared to what they saw from him uh, this past year. The thing with Will Crow, obviously, you know, fairly highly touted prospect, uh, you know, South Carolina Gamecock, great pedigree coming out of college, really shot the bed in his three appearances this year. So it kind of remains to be seen how much the Pirates like him exactly. Granted, Joe Musgrove is probably going to be out the door in a similar trade soon that will open up a spot in the rotation. But I think that, you know, my, my, my guess is Crow's just going to have to fight it out with the rest of that cast of characters.
0: I think Iggy be up because you're not going to get guys like Montana Durepau stealing up spots. You at least want somebody who has some semblance of pedigree. So he'll get his chance. Doesn't matter. I'll see. I wonder how he's going to do when he gets that chance, but he'll be up in 2021.
1: Right. And, you know, I just have to wonder whether or not he was the real focal point of this deal. Um, obviously, you know, Eddie Yeon, we talked about last week and, you know, from the scuttlebutt I've seen on the Internet, Pittsburgh liked him a lot. So he could have he could be the real prize in this deal, even though he's quite some time away. We talked about preaching
0: patience and waiting for these guys. He is some time away. I saw that too. The internet was abuzz with saying Pittsburgh won this deal because they got Mr. Ye on. If he's part of the next batch of competitive pirates, so be it. Good for him. We have some time to think about that. Some odds and ends before we wrap up the show. Good news here: timing Lasorda out of the ICU. He was there for a few months, it seems. We talked about that briefly, one of our earlier shows. So continued thoughts and prayers for Mr. Lasorda. And Tomoyuki Sugano from the Yumari Giants posted as well. Getting looked at by the Red Sox, Blue Jays, Rangers, Padres, and most recently, these New York Mets.
1: Yeah, I think that um we did talk earlier about how if they get Springer, they're probably done with, you know, making major splurges. But I have to think that, given the fact that they're probably in on the Trevor Bowers sweepstakes, even though, you know, that's its own clusterfuck, he'd be a pretty Decent consolation prize, and I hate I hate to say that because you know Bauer is the reigning Cy Young, but this is the kind of signing that you know I would expect Steve Cohen to take a long, hard look at. Obviously, the Mets not the greatest track record with bringing uh, Japanese pitchers over. I remember there was there was one year where um, Ryota Igarashi was their big signing. Um, Yikes, two thousand nine, and. and I think uh, Hisanori Takahashi was kind of like an afterthought who got nowhere near as much publicity, signed for, I believe, less money. But he ended up being the more, the more consistent presence uh, in, the, in that bullpen that year just because Igarashi was far from the player he was advertised as. So hopefully if the Mets bring Sugano on, he can, he can break that mold. Obviously, as someone whose team is still repairing its, its rotation, I would love to see uh, the Sox take a good look at him as well.
0: The two last pieces of news involve front offices. Well, started Queens. The Mets have a new GM. It's official. They are going to be hiring Jared Porter, former assistant with the Arizona Diamondbacks, started as an intern with Boston as the curse was broken, is what you mentioned on our notes. He also spent some time with the Cubs before joining Mike Hazen. So there's a guy with proven track record. I'm sure they have to be happy.
1: Yeah, and I think that when you look at the guys he studied under, not just Hazen, but obviously Theo Epstein in Boston and Chicago, uh, he's put in his time. He, you know, he 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 knows his stuff. Seems like a nice, safe hire for these new New York Mets. Because when I think of Mets GMs. Uh, the main one that will always come to mind is is Omar Minaya and his bizarre midnight firing of Willie Randolph, and you know his defense of 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 Tony Bernazard, which uh, I don't I don't think we need to get into that on here. But it's it's nice to have some some normalcy and stability associated. Uh, with this Mets front office for a change.
0: Mania was back with the team last year as a consultant for Brody Van Wagnens, which could explain some things. Now that it's going to be an Alderson and Porter relationship, I'd imagine there's more consistency. Last but not least, the Philadelphia Phillies have made their decision of who they're going to have running their franchise. And it's a former player. You don't see that too often. Sam Fold. Joining the ranks of Dave Stewart that we were talking about, players turn executives. Of course, the outfielder played for the Rays, played for the Athletics. Super Sam had that one week in like 2011, 2012, where he made like four or five great defensive plays in a row. An incredibly gifted and smart player joining the ranks and is now running this franchise.
1: Yeah, and it was interesting because when we had last spoken about him, he was... Candidate for the Red Sox managerial opening. So, definitely kind of a bit out of left field, pun intended, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, given, you know, that's where I kind of thought his post career uh, trajectory was taking him. But he's as qualified as anyone, I think. Stanford graduate, apparently has done some graduate coursework back at Stanford in statistics. So, extremely bright individual. So, he was Uh, preparing, is what you're telling me. I would say so. Knows the game incredibly well, nine years in the major leagues. Obviously, there's, you know, there's a little bit of uncertainty in that front office given. Obviously, you have, you know, the, the bulldozer that is Dave Dombrowski, but also John Middleton making his weird whiny statements about not having enough money. But I think that, you know, personnel does matter quite a bit. And having Fold in a position of authority, putting him right there at the table with Dombrowski, that's nothing but a good thing for Phillies fans.
0: Sam, this was a great week. So good to have you back. And I'm assuming
1: that you have a 4.0 GPA now. I plead the fifth. See, you're paying attention in law school already. I am. And Matt, you know, honestly, right back at you. I've missed this so much. And, you know, I can't wait to get back in the swing of things and make this a part of uh, a part of my week again.
0: NL Central Prospects next time. For Sam Shapiro, I'm Matt Kovitz. This was On the Farm. Have a great week, everybody.